Hello, friends! Welcome to episode 164 of Storyteller Conclave! This is a show all about helping you run the best tabletop role-playing game that you can. Whether you're a new storyteller or dungeon master learning the craft, or an experienced storyteller looking to take your game to the next level, I am Sarah. And I'm Rob, working on a lot of electronics today. <laughs> yes, you are. How are we doing, Rob? I think we're okay right now. I'm I'm kind of bouncing between my desk and and getting back here to the the actual broadcast desk. Yeah. Uh, because we have a guest. We have we have a third person in we the do. studio with us today, which is news to us. I can say hi, Doctor Jason. I was wondering if I should just like lead in with another thing. Like, <laughs> I was here the whole time. But, excellent, yeah. excellent. Plot twist. Plot twist. Plot twist. Uh, but, so we have with us today uh, Dr. Jason Cox, uh, who is an assistant professor of art education, uh, head of the art education program at the University of Toledo. Yes. Um, Which is funny because we're all like, okay, so what does that have to do with role playing? We shall get to that. <laughs> well, Rob, why don't you, <laughs> don't you talk a little bit about that? So I, I'm going to jump a little off script here, just a slight bit. So sure. I, I met. Uh, Jason through, a, I think, a friend of a friend is the way we eventually yeah. got to know each other. And the way it was described to me is, I've got this professor that I know. He's a doctorate of role play. And I'm like, first off, get out of here. Like, that that doesn't exist. He goes, no, no, no. He did his thesis on role play, so therefore, doctor of role play, as far as I'm concerned. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe I'll believe this. And at that point, I got the, like, w- what the text for the dissertation was, and I'm like, the word role play is in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> this, and then, Read a little bit of the, the the preamble of it. Basically, it was just like, "Holy shit, he is a doctorate of role play." Okay, I gotta I gotta meet this guy. I gotta know a little bit more about what's going on with the situation. So, yep. so, uh, your dissertation was on. Okay, let me see if I got if I have this written the way that you said it was educational communities, arts based inquiry, and and role playing, an American freeform exploration and profession. Uh, with professional and pre-service art educators specializing in art education, a.k.a. it's an investigation in the discourse of power within educational communities. Yeah. Okay, good. I got that. Yeah. That's the short version. <laughs> I am not in higher education. This is hard. <laughs> no, no one, no one should write a title like that. I... There's there's going to be some kind of punishment in limbo for me for writing that title. That right? is true. That is true. So, uh, so to say that you're... you're your day-to-day job is art education. Yep. Uh, but your uh, you twilight within and also within the professorial community effectively role playing. Yes. Uh, You've done so, a lot of writing on so, it. Yeah, there's some clarification within there. Okay. So for one thing, whenever I tell people that my uh, what I teach is art education, I actually often have to clarify what that means. Right. And right. it means I teach art teachers. I teach. The K to 12 art teachers. Right. Um, and then within the role play realm, there's a couple different aspects of it. Like I specifically use role play as a art form. Okay. Uh, but I also use it to support my work in education. I use it as research. I use it as a way of, of understanding. Um, it's a very flexible medium, right? It, it really is. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've lear- we have learned much on um, this show and yet we still know nothing. Yeah. So my, my dissertation, uh, was really the first game I wrote called What to Do About Michael. Okay. And it used, uh, the, uh, when I first wrote it, it was about trying to understand the philosophy of Michel Foucault. Okay. Uh, if, if you want to get, get yeah, into yeah, like yeah, a, yeah, sure. a 5,000 foot overview, that'd be great. Well, we're, we're talking about power and we'll, we'll talk, yeah, exactly. talk about power without talking about Foucault. Um, so I, 
I had been doing a lot of research uh, about Foucault and his opinions about the way that power functions. And one of the conclusions I came to was that uh, a lot of people will encounter them and say, yes, that's true. That's so true of everyone who is not me. Uh, I am <laughs> I am not subject to these same things that you are saying because I am so smart. Uh, so, so, um, when I first wrote it, it was a, a way to see those concepts embodied okay. and the, the game was basically a, a group of teachers getting together to talk about a student and what to do about them because they had attacked another student and the student they're talking about is actually Michel Foucault. I took things from his actual life, from his hmm. biography. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and made them things that the various teachers knew. And then they have to decide what to do. But it wasn't just that they were the teachers. They were multiple levels of people that they are effectively yeah. uh, avataring, if we will, and, and, and having to roll through those situations. Well, the, the original game was like a 20 minute run through. And right. that one, it was just the teachers. Okay. When it got to the dissertation level, they were, we were playing the teachers. We were playing the students. We were playing the siblings. We were playing the head of the PTA. We were playing, uh, golly, uh, the superintendent. Yeah, the, like, whole, the whole gambit yeah, from from top to bottom, to everybody look, involved. Yeah, um, and one of the reasons I did that was um, fundamentally one of the problems that, that especially American schools have is that there is a lot of barriers between people um, mm -hmm. of time, physical space, what have you, uh, the, the, the kids actually see through more of the barriers than most of the adults. Yeah. Um, and that leads to a lot of difficulty in understanding. And that in turn leads to a lot of defensiveness and a lot of choices that you think are what's for the best that without really understanding what the best should look like. Um, like a terrible game of telephone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is a, I think that's a pretty good description of a lot of systems that we encounter. I, so I, it's a pretty terrible game of telephone. It's funny that, uh, uh, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna bring this back to role playing for just a second, but a lot of times when we're building worlds, we're doing this. I know one of the things that we talk about all the time is I build these complex nets in my world of, wheels of socials wheels, and yeah. wheels. Uh, but one of the things that we often forget about is we create this simplicity in fantasy mm -hmm. that it's the king who talks to one dude and somehow the guard knows exactly how things the king wants done. Yeah. That is yeah. never how it actually is. That guy has like 19 levels of people between him and the king. And by the time he gets to him, the shit is rolled down to him and he does not want to talk to you. Right. So right, he's going right. to make it as simple as possible. <laughs> like, just don't screw this up. Is that even what the king wants? I don't care what the king wants. It's Thursday night. I'm at a bar looking for adventurers. Yeah. Go away. But that's not how it's ever presented. It's like there's a scroll. Like the the king has like, proclaimed this to you, adventurer. It's like no, come on. Come well, on. look. I mean, we, we don't we don't we don't play role playing games for the realism. We play them for the, for the <laughs> fantasy escapism. You know that's and why I think that's what we're going to get into tonight. That's why <laughs> that's why you don't see the, the the McDonald's RPG where you get to roll, you know roll to flip burgers. You know. <laughs> No, I don't know. Shang-Chi kind of cuts into that a little hard. I guarantee you somewhere out there there's, <laughs> there's a roll to flip bird. Shang-Chi gets away with it because eventually there are vampires. And there but, are hopping vampires. But I think that is part of our conversation tonight is that I think part of it is that we do a disservice by not allowing that. But at the same time, we don't all want that. Yeah. So I'll caveat the entirety of this evening is we're not telling you to to, to – 
to heavy think about this. We're at the 300 level. We're talking a lot of concepts here. We're going to explore a lot about power in games, power at the table, all, all, all the things that influence into that and the dynamics that come along with it. But it doesn't mean you have to include all these things or hyper-examine them at your next time at the table. Right, Play right. a damn game if that's all you want to do. Please, <laughs> please take this entire episode and go, those were some interesting things to think about. <laughs> you may walk away with this and think, hey, maybe I will run a game that's like this. Or maybe the next time you, you bring up your bad guy, you, you add a little spin to it. Or maybe you don't. And mm-hmm. you just, you're like, well, I've gone too deep down the rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> so, speaking of which, so not, not to get too far away from things, but I did want to bring up the fact that you're currently working on a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a an adaptation. Yeah. So the original one is the uh, five hundred year old vampire, no, no, or no, thousand year old. The, the original was thousand year old vampire. vampire. Thank you. Uh, by Tim Hutchings. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. And you're working on five hundred. Five hundred year old vampire. Why? I, I always have to ask. <laughs> so, so it's a prequel game. <laughs> it is not like exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a lot at play there. Um. So thousand year old vampire is a really fantastic game. I, I strongly suggest people check it out. Uh, Tim is, is a kind and creative person that I can't say enough good things about Tim. Okay. Um, and the original is a, is a solo journaling game. It's, it's, it's great, lonely fun, uh, for more experienced role players, I would say. But Tim asked me about doing an educational adaptation, uh, which people have been asking him about doing, and he didn't feel that he was in a place where he wanted to be doing that. Education isn't really his field. He is also a professor, but he doesn't really do uh, K-12. to And so I started working on it. And one of the things I discovered early on, just for the discrepancy in time, is uh, I wanted history to matter. I wanted the players to do some amount of research. Um, and one of the things I discovered is that uh, there's a, an awful lot of parts of this world where due to a legacy of imperialism and colonialism, um, there's just not that much history more than 500 years ago that we, we know that much about uh, because it's been um, – Destroyed, wiped out, yeah. minimized, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, changed, yeah. rewritten. In an early playtest of the game, uh, the, like the very first one, uh, I, I listed all the continents of the world. I said, where do you want to start? They said, Australia. I said, great. Uh, we established the year, which I think was somewhere in the 1200s. Uh, and then I discovered I couldn't find out anything about Australia from that time period because uh, I, 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 in fact, reached out to my friends that are Australian. And and had the same problem uh, because the British Empire was real, real good about destroying history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So finding yeah. out anything before around 1600 in Australia is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted people to play from cultures all around the world. So I started making some adjustments. And one of them was to shorten it to the 500 years. Um, there's other things to encourage people to play from different cultures. There's a lot of things that are about playing with other people and, and how to make space for them in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing, partially because I'm an art education person, is that it's not just journaling. They also create some kind of artifact to oh. go along with their journal entry. I think that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Um, so it's – it's uh, there's, there's a lot of different themes. The original game is in some ways about the disintegration of memory. Uh, as you get older, not being able to remember really things that you did in your twenties or things that used to matter to you. 
okay. um, the, the, the strange kind of distortion uh, that we experience as we age. Yep. And yep. that is that is a little bit in my game, but a lot of the players are, are on the younger side. So okay. have not necessarily experienced that the same way. But there's a thing in my game, which is you're part of a cohort of vampires. And these are the only other creatures in existence who stand a, a chance in heck of remembering who you used to be, of what's happened, of, of, of having in a vague sense even of the kind of existence you live. Uh, and you can hate them, but you still get together every 30 years or so. Right, right. <laughs> because... Because it's the it's the only way to try to hold on to anything. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that becomes in the game that becomes where you share your journal entries and your and your artifacts that you've collected. So it's one of one of those concepts. Are uh, the reason that uh, uh, the oldest lovers left alive? I believe is the name mm-hmm. of the yes. movie. Yes, one, it's my absolute favorite vampire movie. Yeah, absolute no. favorite vampire movie. No, I think I think that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, there was uh, an aspect of that that reminded me of. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, war camaraderie, where you have mm-hmm. you know warriors who return to each other, even if they dislike each other, even if they have different beliefs or anything, because they're they, the only people the other person that understand can. that aspect yeah. that no one else can get that, and that's that's a concept that reverberates in a lot of places. Nursing does that, you know, hospitals where anytime where you have a trauma or an extended event, those people return to each other mm-hmm. to. To just have that understanding, that connection, because nobody bonding. else can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. life is the greatest trauma, trauma from bond. <laughs> and after I would say 150 years of it continuing on beyond that, it that that could feel very harsh, mm-hmm. especially some of the points in history, like watching things change and shift, and things you yeah. loved literally disappear. I got some playtest feedback, which was about uh, how the players had picked out some some fairly gruesome facts about history, and then. I had to be like, I got to be honest. These were not the most gruesome. No, history is is not pretty, uh, and that's a it's a it's a tough thing to take in. And it is one of the safety things I had to write into the rules. Uh, I should mention this game is supposed to be kickstarted this coming fall, okay. uh, and it's being published by Central Michigan University, which has a lovely games program up there. That's uh, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely keep it on the uh, list. We'll keep we'll keep notation on it for people because I'm I am certain that some of our listeners are going to be very interested in looking <laughs> into this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, let's step a little bit into the discussion um and and I'm going to do my part to try and help and I mean, you're you're an educator. You're going to bring it down. Our listeners range vastly. Like we have some listeners who are literally brand new role players, brand new storytellers who've who've barely done anything, and we have people who've been doing this for thirty years. Yep, yep. Who as, are, lo- as long as we have. Yeah, at literally. least, at least. And sometimes I'm sure there's a few listeners out there who've done it for a lot longer, uh, uh, based upon just dynamics that I've seen in our numbers. Yeah, the the, the Mad Elf I think has most of us beat. Yeah, without a doubt, without yeah, a doubt. So, absolutely. um, so let's let's let's. Well, I'm going to keep that a little bit in mind here to try and do it. But uh, one of the things that uh, I want to kind of breach him before we get into more is the basic awareness that there is a dynamic at the table. Like uh, one of the things that we talked about in the pre-show was just the fact that the DM is investing more. And mm-hmm. that creates a a level of, of power, not so much in the sense of the, the traditional sense of a power dynamic, but it is the fact that it, even if it is the most – co-op level 
tabletop game that you can have a narration where literally the roles are open to everyone, that storyteller who's having who's having a little bit of control is still investing. They're still taking the time to to develop things. They're still taking times to present it. Sometimes they're hosting, and that right there creates hidden expectations whether or not they're vocal or not we've talked about that in the past the simple appreciation of having a space oh, yeah, and having absolutely. the station and that does something to where where things are at um i think you were talking about uh aspects of the the refereeing of that almost yeah well that used to be there was a time that was actually the more common term uh for a game master was referee mm-hmm. um gary ellen fine uses it a lot gary ellen fine's work is Looks different from today than it did when he wrote it in the 80s, if anyone's ever read it. it he wrote a, a book called Shared Fantasy, uh, one of the the early academic works about role-playing. Yeah. Um, but the there's a whole lot of different attitudes that are at play. Generally speaking, um, all games, role-playing games or not, are, are social experiences. Yeah. They, they, they are. Even if you're playing a solitaire game, you've got kind of an, an implied other person represented by the designer or the game board or such like. Um, but within role-playing games, there's uh, a distinct need for trust. And part of that is established by common expectations. Uh, whether that's we play the dice where they lie, we do the rules as written, uh, we're here for a story, we're not here for rolling, whatever. You need a, a social contract with your players, Right. And most of the time, if you've got a, a game master, part of that social contract is agreeing that the game master is the final arbiter mm-hmm. uh, and that they are the ones who are going to set the pace. Um, I distinctly that, remember one of the first things I learned about storytelling was uh, that uh, rule number one, the GM is always right. And rule number two, if the GM is incorrect, see rule number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, the original uh, like Marvel role-playing game mm-hmm. actually had this thing where if you, you buffaloed the GM, you got extra karma, which existed <laughs> in opposition to that rule. But they also still had the GM as the final arbiter. So it was a, a weird, weird rule to have in there. But, but yeah, it is – it is a thing. I mean, most of the time the GM is the person who's invested the money in the books. And mm-hmm. They've spent right. the time writing the adventure and they've done the thankless task of trying to get multiple people together, which as, you know, we grow into adulthood becomes, I cannot do Mondays. Uh, and, that, and, and on top of learn, buying all the books, you take all that time to invest learning in the rules yeah. so that you can not only play them but adjudicate them. Mm-hmm. Be and, a proper ref. Yeah. And uh, in some sense, the, the payoff for that is supposed to be a recognition that the GM is the one who is is uh, in control of the situation, you know, the, the, the seeding of power. Now, whether or not that's consistent in every group is mm-hmm. another question, and, and whether or not it ought to be even. Uh, but that's the, the common understanding. Um, but... One of the things that we had talked about a little bit before is there's always some amount of bleed, right? So if we're at a convention mm-hmm. and it's a it's a convention where you're there for a one shot, you don't necessarily know the other players. Right. You have paid money to be at the convention. You have probably paid a token or two to be in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're expecting the game to take a period of time approaching two to three hours. Sure. So those are the expectations that you're starting with. Mm-hmm. And you probably also are expecting rules as written uh, and play the dice where they lay because 
you need these these reliable common sets of understandings. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a, a home game, it can be a, a lot more all over the place with that, and it can be affected with what the GM knows you're going to do because. I know this player will always do the crazy thing. I know this player will <laughs> do that. I I am aware that this player wants to have time to work a mic. Uh, mm-hmm. And the kind of uh, experience that you're going to have as a GM, as a player, as a group, um, will vary depending on the context. And this actually brings me to a point that I wanted to make, I've been thinking about. Sure. So the nature of power... Mm-hmm. Uh, is that it is both fluid and contextual. Okay. And by, I, <laughs> I, I, that is a fantastic way of saying it, yes. Yeah. So, um, one, it does it, it does mean that um, the where you're playing the game, who you're playing with, et cetera, et cetera, is going to change the nature of power. But also, the GM doesn't hold sole power, even within a, uh, a game. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. The players have the choices about what they're going to do, mm-hmm. how their powers work out. But then the social dynamics on top of that, the kind of arguments they lay out, the mm-hmm. convincing or not. Um, and even, again, way back in time, Gary Allen Fine talks about that where, like, a player tries to get out of a bad role by saying, I'm a dragon with a tail. Couldn't my tail have knocked something over? Or Right, or right. Like Extenuating that. circumstances yeah. of the situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it ends up being a little all over the place. Um and it seems a lot more cut and dried when you're picking up a rule book and reading it than when you actually start playing. Well, yeah, and I, I, I tend to agree. And actually, I'm going to come back to your, your analogy at the convention because um, it not only presents uh, an issue of dynamic there where you've got a storyteller who you're unfamiliar with. You have, you know, you may have gotten a preamble of some kind stating what it is. I've done this a few times myself where you might get a framework for what the setting is if it's slightly different, some of the additions and things like that to it. And a general expectation of what's going to happen. Like you're, you're going into a dungeon. That's it. Like we're, we're going to tell this story and we'll be done with it. Um, but in the case of like Pathfinder or Shadowrun where you have these adventures that are a long going series where everyone is basically going through the same adventure as written with a different storyteller telling it, you get even a different perspective about that storyteller because they're all supposed to run it universally the same, but with maybe only minor uh, narrative tweaks to it. But the story should be identical. The the outcomes could effectively be identical for every player, but obviously the characters are very different. The amount of people you're going to have at that table, how how much they've slept, ate, drank, showered, or not, you know, all come into play as a social dynamic. But there's one other piece to that that sits outside of the storyteller's perspective, and that is even who's sitting at the table. And I brought this up to Sarah when we were talking about it. It's like when you sit down at the table with your friends, there's an expectation of trust and things mm-hmm. that you've built up. If someone new comes to that table, there's a certain level of of bringing them into the fold and vetting them to make sure that they fit with the table to be able to continue. It's not just a drop-in kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at your local game store, that might be a little bit different, you know, but there's still – it's the local game store. There's sure. a certain perspective. On the other hand, if some dude comes from – Tulsa, Oklahoma, to your Detroit-based game because he's in for the weekend and he sees that there's an open seat for one of the Shadowrun games, you know, adventures, but it's being played at your local game. Five of you may know each other and this dude just sits down at the table, Mm -hmm. you know, and he has complete cultural difference. 
depending on how he walks in the door, sits down, and what he lays out in front of him is going to change the dynamic at that table. Yeah, Your storyteller may look at that and go, he's using a tablet, he's got his own books, his dice are clearly like, you know, the $99, like, specialty dice ordered online through a Kickstarter that's glowy and stuff. Yes, I have some of those. Um, you know, and he's got a, you know, leather attache, he's almost wearing you know he's still peeling off his suit from his work effort he's like all right i'm ready to play and you're all like who's this dude like how how am i going to live up to this expectation (laughs) you know kind of a thing likewise you go to a convention and you don't realize it but the token you know seat next to you is sam regal yeah is that dm suddenly now shitting their pants Right. Because they have to live up to an expectation. Are the other players, like, giddy, totally unprepared, and now some of them worried that their their crappy character idea is going to completely suck? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. in comparison, those dynamics exist in the moment. Yeah. And totally change the play of how you're handling that situation. And that's things that are just literally the subtle dynamics that we don't consider. I, I dare say that, like, we even have those dynamics, like, you know, very strongly even in our within our own friends group. You know, mm. uh, you made mention to me that one of our friends that we've been badgering to run a game mm-hmm. has been slightly hesitant to do so partially because apparently my reputation precedes me and I wanted – I asked to be in his game – You've been doing a podcast on gaming for <laughs> over two years. And he doesn't – he's intimidated by the idea that I would be at his table. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, I, I just play an anime magical girl apparently in every game. So this right. that's what you've told me. <laughs> yeah. You kind of do. You kind of do. do. You kind of do. i got a brand. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But the whole thing is, is that that right there is an unknown perception. Mm-hmm. Even in a trusted community. Yeah, exactly. Like, he would have no problem contacting you and saying, hey, can you come over and give me a ride somewhere? But when it comes to running a game, he's sweating bullets. <laughs> but but this this same thing happens, like, in multiple different directions within our own friends group as well. Like, for instance, uh, we've got another friend who's threatening to run Battletech. Same same thing. Oh, he's like He's like, you uh, – you you grew up on BattleTech like I don't like oh I'm so intimidated by having like buddy I haven't played since high school and like I'm happy just to you know run a mech around and roll some dice man yeah. like you don't got to worry about like I'm not going to be nitpicking everything but at the same time I'm saying that but I scrapped my Tron game mm-hmm. because, because you were worried that I knew too much technical you, stuff you and Overwatch that's true that is true both work heavily in IT and like uh, Sean too you mm-hmm. know as well. Uh, I, I have a, I have a bit more trust that, that, that he wouldn't, that, you know, he, he would lean a little more into the fantastical elements of it, but I, I just, I just imagine a scene where, like, I'm like, okay, and, you know, they're, they're trying to open a port, so there's this big gate, and you're like, that's not how routers work. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll just scrap my whole plot. <laughs> there was a, I saw Jim Butcher, we were talking about Jim Butcher, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. we were, we were. Yeah. So, the, I saw Jim Butcher speak one time. And someone was asking him if he played the Dresden Files role-playing game. <laughs> and he said, I am the one person who cannot play that game. Uh-huh. And then he said, imagine I'm playing that game. Someone else is running it because I'm tired of writing, you know, Dresden, maybe, possibly. And they say, this is how magic works. And I say, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shattered reality. <laughs> yep. Uh, so so it was uh, of the many games he plays, one that he left out. And, you know, there's – I can think of many other things. I – I have a, 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 an excellent friend who does a lot of online gaming named Richard Rogers who was playing a game at a conference and a, and a very well-known game designer sat down to play. 
But after half an hour, maybe, uh, they said they weren't feeling it, got up and left. And for my friend, that was, that was a bruise. It felt like he'd failed that. And he's one of the best GMs I know. Uh, I'm, I'm positive that is not what the designer meant to have as the impact. Oh, God, no. God, no. But Mm -hmm. it has that impact. Mm -hmm. I mean, Um, I, I, I had the same thing when I played 7th C with you and Mariska. Like, I didn't know who I was sitting down at the table with until I realized it was one of the creators. One of the creators, you know, one yeah. of the crafted designers of who helped put this world together. And suddenly, I'm fangirling internally. Yep. Like, how am I? I'm enjoying this moment. You know, I've I've been around celebrities before in that kind of sense sphere. You know, yeah, go ahead, suck that up, Mariska, if you're hearing. Um, but effectively, the truth is, is that you have that moment of glow. And fear all yeah, wrapped sure. into one. Sure. Um, I remember the first time uh, or one of the times I was playing um, Rifts, I played with Kevin and didn't know I was sitting down with Kevin. Oh, wow. Because he was a friend of a friend and he, he was in the Detroit area. I mean, it, it the possibility was there. It wasn't a, a anything miraculous at the time in my brain, but it was like one of those things that because I didn't know, yeah, it yeah. was better. And I think that made the huge difference for me. There's So there's a lot of things that play there, right? So system mastery, world mastery. The, oh, God, the, yeah. As expressions of power. But I'm also um, – uh, Morgan Ellis was a really terrific person. If, if anyone out there knew him, he was amazing. Uh, and he did a lot with Evil Hat and Fate. And then, normally he played Fate games. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And when – one time I was playing and the GM was doing something he knew was against the rules – and he was trying real hard <laughs> not to be like, but you can't. Right, uh, right. Oh, like, it's your game. It's your game. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, I need to take a walk. <laughs> like for a lot of people, Morgan Ellis in some senses was fate. Like he was the biggest representation of, of what it looked like to play those games. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing about going to these things, uh, game designers are remarkably accessible. Uh, <laughs> like the chance to play with them is out there. The mm-hmm. chance to talk to them is out there. The, um, but, uh, and then you find yourself like on Facebook and they're your friends and they're talking about things with you. Like, like you, the world gets yeah. smaller. Yeah. I mean, I remember being at, uh, early conventions when I was at confusion, uh, and, uh, some of the really early, early, early conventions that made it to Detroit. I know I sat down with a lot of people and talked to them that were game designers, and I had no idea. I was mm-hmm. just too young, mm-hmm. but I was enjoying the craft. I was enjoying learning about role-playing. I was talking with people, and as time went on, I, I kind of realized who I was chatting with, but I did the same thing in the computer industry. You know, I was I, early on in my life, I went out to Comdex. I was in my early teens with my father, and it was the National Computer Convention. There was all kinds of people there. Yeah. And I would run into all kinds of engineers who later I would find out were now, you know, five, seven years later are the executives at major corporations and InfoSec and other areas. And I'm like, holy crap, I I had conversations with these people. I, I dealt with this. I know the back edge of the industry with these people. And that's a perspective for me that kind of changed things a little bit. But at the same time, the dynamic never left. I always had that edge of, am I living up to the standard that I've, expectational standard that I've built in my mind that has nothing to do with what they're seeing. But at the same time, 
there's an underlying factor like you were talking about where you're fearful of my level of technology for running your Tron game. I'm not even thinking about them. Like, yeah, just run, run whatever. But there's subtle tones and conversation in my head, like you were saying with the rules, where I'm going to be like, that's not right, but I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. I'm just here to yeah. enjoy a game. And it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to frustrate you. Yeah. Uh, whether, you, whether you realize it or not, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and, like... The thing, the thing that I that, that that keeps me from wanting to just break through and just you know take like I said take your advice basically and just yeah. go like and just do it yeah you just know? rip the bandaid off and do it is I listen to you talk about work <laughs> and I understand one out of every three words I only know I only know the definitions of some of those words from like context of of other things and I'm like that's fair and and you just it's just they're, they're casual terms to you. Because you're immersed in that. I'm and in the so, soup that is IT, yeah. Right, but, like, from from where you are in IT, like, that's just everyday terms. Like, that's mm-hmm. just the base level. You're, you are talking like a plebeian on your level of IT. Mm-hmm. You are toning it down for me, and I still don't know what you're talking about because I'm down here, you know? And, like, you don't realize you're up here anymore. You right. don't see the lower levels of it anymore, right. you right. know? And and I, I guess the the the, the uh, I'm gonna say this is that mm-hmm. this kind of culminates to one of the pieces that we had we had discussed a little bit, which was that it's not an even playing field at the table. Yeah, no matter absolutely. how much you think it is, it isn't. And we've talked about the greatest disparities that are at the table, where about access alone. Mm-hmm. You know, we make. I will say this: access to gaming is better. Now, in many aspects, yes, because the uh, you know the percentage of people who who can get themselves to a digital copy or pass a digital copy or 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 even get some of the free games that are out oh, there good, and available yeah. on like free games days and things like Between that. Drive through RPG and Humble Bundle, like yeah. But again, we're things. we're making we're already making an assumption of access to the internet by that statement. Sure, and we sure. know that that's a struggle for even rural people. Sure, like they've got satellite connectivity that they wish they could download a five meg PDF. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know. When uh, Sean and I go up north to visit his mother, uh, she is in the uh, the the, 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 upper, back the up. end of the upper upper yep. upper peninsula of Michigan, uh, in the middle of the woods. And uh, yeah, it is a tenuous satellite con- connection. Mm-hmm. And there have been literally that exact same thing because we go up there for a week and we want to play D and D. Yeah. Um. With uh. With with uh. With his brother and his cousin uh. And his friend and uh. We just. It was it was something like you know an hour to basically try to download the player's handbook on PDF yep. form, you know. But that that dynamic on its own of just the haves and the have-nots. Yep. Yep. And yet we're not even getting into the idiosyncrasies of I have access to these things, but maybe my cognitive recognition of reading through a six hundred page man you know, manual that is D and D is not the same. As yours. I mean, we do it all the time with system spotlights. I cannot eat a system spotlight mechanics deep dive like you can. I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Like, you want me to learn a new system, it's going to take me a little while to get that down. You, on the other hand, can literally grace through the book, see the overtone of how the architecture works, and then just regurgitate it back out at a relatively confident level. 
Enough that you can teach me over a microphone and help our listeners. And I find that beautiful. On the other hand, you look at the lore section that's 90 pages and your brain starts to melt. (laughs) You're like, I've been staring at the same page for three three hours and I have no idea what I just read. (laughs) But I see the vastness of a universe that I can capture and understand. And that right there is a different dynamic. Yeah, sure. That that sits within that. So I think that right there as a whole opens the other doorway of of the dynamic set in that in that we have greater disparagements of even social architecture financial architecture um and uh and i'm, I'm literally wearing the shirt to to describe it you know <laughs> neurodiversity university yep. neurodiversity architecture yep. that, that's a dynamic that's as well like we've talked about how do you sit at it in one of the reasons why we're kind of even got to this discussion is how do you sit down at a table with people who have ADHD, who have other uh, aspects of 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 um, psychological diversity and neurodiversity, mm-hmm. and make it feel cohesive and level? Yeah, you can't. There's going to be some dynamic there. Well, so there's an interesting thing there. Um, I did before I go into this. I did want to mention also, like there. The, there's much more diversity of types of games and of the availability of gaming groups today, again, depending on your ability of technology largely, than there used to be. And that oh, is a, a great thing. Um, but I'm also thinking about I, – I have a friend who uh, I only see at conventions who is deaf. Uh, and he does not have much ability to hear left. So his ability to play games is is dependent upon certain environments. Of course. So if you go into a typical room uh, that they do a whole bunch of games in, like a large gaming hall with lots of different tables, he can't play now. Uh, just can't do it. Mm-hmm. He can read lips if you've got a round table, but you he needs to be able to see people. And for him... Uh, I, I ran uh, a LARP put out by um, Bully Pulpit Games called Juggernaut, which is a great game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the handy thing about it is it's it's got an upper limit, I think, of seven, six or seven. Okay. Mm. That's as many people as it is. And for that LARP to work, you need a room on your own. So it was a game he could play. Yeah. Uh, even though LARPs were not typically his thing. Mm-hmm. And and part of it, the high emotion caliber meant that people were often speaking very loudly and exaggeratedly, which for him meant, meant it was more accessible play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so accessibility is an issue because most people start off with a kind of interior de- default about what you need to play. And they assume a certain level of ability. And proceed from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and building in accommodations, building in understanding, building in empathy, um, making the changes that are necessary is is a difficult thing for people to do when it's not a place that they already occupy because they just don't think about it. It's, it's not always uh, intentional, but <laughs> uh, yeah. in disability discourse, I read it one time and it was – if everybody could fly, what do you think would sidewalks would look like for the for the people who couldn't? Oh wow! Uh, like, yeah. and that's and that's the 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 situation that we're sometimes in. Mm-hmm. I I literally experienced this yesterday, and re- it reminded me of a further conversation that was. It's one of uh, one of our friends um, just had his uh, femur fractured, 
And so he's got pins and everything in there. He's mobile now, which is great. Um, it's still too early really for physical therapy, but uh, he needed to go grocery shopping and couldn't push a cart and walk at the same time and yep. grab things. It wasn't going to happen. Yep. Uh, but he's like, I, I need to go and walk. You know, will you go groceries? I'm like, sure, sure. And so we're we're going, and he's he has one of the walkers. And he's like, the moment we got out of the car and we start moving, he's just like, I totally understand why they put tennis balls on these things now. Mm-hmm. Because you can push them over most surfaces. And the key there is most surfaces. And he's like, I was never so aware of the curve in a sidewalk for where they put for uh, – uh, uh, getting things from one level to another, just that slight little indent that helps you get up on the edge of the sidewalk until I got this. And now I feel that edge more and more. Hmm. And it brought me back to another one of our dear friends who is an occupational therapist um, who does who's uh, certified in blind. And he's like, until you do that, you never realize how inaccessible our world is for someone who has diminishing or no vision, you know, or vision that is diminishing where they had it because there's an expectation in your mind, especially if you've had vision of what the world looks like and what you're expecting. Yeah. And now you start tapping and realizing that there is a lot more diversity to what is in front of you than you ever could imagine and more, more things to handle of walking. You, mm-hmm. you start shuffling. Now your feet are catching every edge. You leave things in the floor accidentally and suddenly are a death trap. Yeah. You know, or, or something that's a complete obstacle and it shuts you down. That kind of minor inaccessibility is invisible to us mm-hmm. and creates ridiculous dy- levels of dynamics. So. There are, there's some games that have been, um, working to, to embrace diversity in, in different ways, in different forms. Like no game is for every person, right? Sure. Right. Right. Um, sure. There's the, the the way that things like GURPS handled it in the 80s, where you have a disability, therefore now you have extra points. Uh, generally speaking, not seen as cool anymore. Um, <laughs> Looking at you, <laughs> fair, um, and it's fair. But uh, there's always there's always trying to balance that need with also appropriation or experience taking. Mm-hmm. Um, so. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. Uh, a lot of games uh, do things where they try to get away from the default. For example, if you look, we were talking about masks earlier. When you make a character in that, the, the first things that they suggest are not typically straight white males. They, right. they encourage you to look outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, since you were talking about Zhang Shi, I wanted to come back and talk to that. Yeah, please. Uh, uh, excellent game. So since you've, you've, you've looked at the mechanics, first of all, you will, you will immediately recognize – that the power dynamics between the characters are one all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, contextual because <laughs> the old person in certain environments has the most powerful and then in others they have zero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there's also a, a thing that the book is trying to address in terms of, I, I suppose I would call it world mastery, cultural um, mastery even. Mm-hmm. The first half of that book is trying to establish a base common understanding of the cultures at play mm-hmm. in yes. the world. Yes. Um, Beautifully it, done too. When I was a kid, <laughs> when I was in 14, I would read all the Shadowrun books. Yeah. Uh, and to some degree, the, it was on me to provide context and understanding uh, for my players that did not read all the Shadowrun books. Yeah. Um, 
but it's much harder to do in a game like Shang-Chi. Uh, because one of the things that the different writers were from different Asian cultures, uh, they, they, they hired on people. They were dealing with a lot of complex ideas. They still got flack that, that I, I don't personally believe they deserved. Um, but it's asking you to do some homework. Uh, and it's asking you to be respectful. Yeah. Um, and describing what that looks like. And that is in some ways to deal with the power discrepancies that they could anticipate Mm -hmm. and giving you the tools that you need to at least begin to address them. Mm -hmm. Uh, even if you can't get all of them because you can't, people are messy. Yeah. Uh, there's some that, that you know are going to happen. Sure. Sure. And that's part of, and it's an interesting thing where like, sure, system matters. The the use of the D eight is intentional. The use of the color red is intentional. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the world in that sense matters too, because they're trying to, there's an understanding that they want to have, but also a, a very particular type of game. Well, I think this wraps into the next part of the discussion that I wanted to kind of walk into. Thank you very much. Was that, you had made the point that game design is mind control. And that's not your statement. That's <laughs> another statement. But that the game designers themselves have a clear vision in their head, whether it's not really truly expressed within the materials, of where they see this game being played and how it's being played and the the, the contextual culture of the players at the table when they're playing it, what yep. you're going to be doing with it. And it's... It's not something that's overt, and it has not been something overt. It's more now than it ever has been because of, and I'll I'll use the term general, indie game design versus your classic role-playing, your Mm -hmm. OSR, you know. And that that break has given us a a, a view into those people and what they they tend to do. I think to a a lesser degree, and I'll I'll kind of uh, try and step this very shortly, in that we see that we saw that in... Um, storytelling through animation, stories like uh, Steven Universe and uh, you know uh, and, and that type. You the creators came very out and explained what the story was about and what what kind of context it was in. Whereas we would get turtles and we had no idea what the context of understanding where this story was going or how we're supposed to be looking at these teenage mutant ninja turtles and what they are meant to be. In that context, we're now just overjoyed that you brought that up. (laughs) Turtles come around every time we can. Yep. But the point is, is that when we're dealing with game systems like Shang-Chi, especially, we are presented in very, you know, bold font and, and colorful language in the sense that this is what we intend. And we're trying to hand you our intentions in an open way so that when you play the game, you're playing them with those intentions. And yet we look at something as powerful as some of the other games that we have that run the edge of OSR and and uh, indie where you're definitely still playing a powerful story, but you don't necessarily know what they intended. Mm-hmm. And so you're struggling to try and find it. So, so I, I want... I would love to continue the the of where the original point, which was game design is mind control, where that wrapped in and how that kind of encapsulates in your what you were saying earlier, or actually in our first I mean, discussion. There's a lot of things all there over. Is, the there's there's a lot in that. <laughs> so the the game design is mind control argument. Uh, I, I sent yeah, where you did a, that start? I, I, I sent I, you I read a link it. to it. Yeah, uh, it was a presentation I think at a Gen Con, um, well, yeah, circa 2013, something like that. And it did not go over well. 
Well, <laughs> depends on who you were presenting it to. There are a lot of game designers who felt very strongly that that is, was accurate, and there were a lot that said that's only accurate if you're trying to play that kind of game. Yep. Um, Do you agree with it? I I don't. Um, okay. I, I, I'm not a big fan of game design. I think you can design a game that encourages certain themes. Okay. Yep. But, well, now this gets into an interesting question. Let, let's continue with the thought. <laughs> we'll come let's, back to that. No, 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 because it's part of it. So, for me, games are an art form. We've already established that. Right. Sure. That's how I engage with them, whether or not they're necessarily meant to be. Um, so, if I engage with a work of art, uh, there's... There's an interesting situation where one person can believe that something is a terrific work of art and another person can say it's not art at all and they can both be right. Sure. Uh, okay. I agree and, to that. And that is that, – that can sometimes be problematic, especially if the artist is still alive. So, for example, Judy Chicago created a piece called The Dinner Party. Uh, I, I think I remember this. You, you, you very probably do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a large triangular table. Uh, many of the names on it are well-known people, but not all of them, and they are women. And it was largely about the erasure of women, of, of, of them being not given a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yes, and, okay, okay. And Judy Chicago, still being alive, is very protective over how that piece is interpreted, because it means a lot to her. That it represents the idea that she wants it to. Uh, to misinterpret it to her is a socially damaging thing. Okay, okay. Were she not still alive, <laughs> people's interpretations would be all over the place, and she wouldn't show up and, and be very angry with you. Uh, that, okay, so you fair, end up in fair. a different situation. Whereas if uh, if I talk about how I feel looking about something by Leonardo, Raphael, Michelangelo, sure. or Donatello. Well done. Well they're, done. They're, they're probably not going to show up and, and give me a guff about it. Probably right? not. You've just become a new fan favorite <laughs> on the show, by the way. Yep. Congrats. <laughs> oh, there's more we could go into with that, too. Um, but so uh, I don't – I'm not a big fan of the game design is mind control idea because – once you've written it, there's so much that's out of your control, and every playing group is going to be different. You can try mm-hmm. to foreground certain themes. You can say this is the theme that this is about. But if I read a book and I get something different from it than what someone else does, that doesn't mean my interpretation is is wrong, per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means that I'm encountering it differently. Okay. And okay, that's fair. When you have any given um, experience that is both shared and individual, and there is a number of them in the world, uh, the biggest problem that we tend to have isn't that our interpretations are different; it's that we assume they're all the same. I, I think that that's <laughs> that's the part that gets me is is that, uh, and and I, I guess it's an extrapolation more upon the the thesis statement or the the general statement that game design is mind control is that we do get a preconception that everyone is thinking along the same lines. And we see it every time we look on Reddit in, in RPG, mm-hmm. slash r RPG, is that s- tons of people have the same kind of mind frame about D&D, and then one person steps in and goes, no, that's that's not how I see this at all. And they're all like, what are you talking about? Um, the the gentleman who, I can't think of his name right now, who wrote about uh, orcs as a racist statement. Sure, sure, yeah. Sure. Um, and people are being like, it's not racist. And he's like, nope, it, it clearly is. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're missing the point of the statement is that... 
X is racist because it is a defined race that is defined by its actions only. Mm-hmm. A whole race. Like, that's not an individual. That's a race that you're saying is is like that. Um, and that's problematic. It, yeah. it, deri- yeah. it changes your mindscape to the point where it damages your brain when you go to another game that has an orc. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, you ran into that even in your own campaign side. I did. You I know? did because I made the orcs noble. And, you, and, you made your orcs noble to, to turn different. that very trope on its on its edge, yep. and then um, one of our players brought in a character from my setting, where the orcs are essentially uh, brutish cavemen. Yeah, um, it's 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 not it's not that they're evil by nature; it's just that they're territorial and Neanderthalic. Yeah, almost animalistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and followed through Neolithic. With that. Is there you go. Yes. That's a great way of putting it. But that that concept of that moving from even from the base OSR type systems into indie, it's hard to break that. We spoke about that multiple times. We even mm-hmm. talked about it in the last game system setting where we're talking where you're rolling a D twenty and your brain can't comprehend less than more. Yeah. Just that yeah. simple thing. It's what do you mean D- I want to roll a one on the D twenty? Right. Or that the first the first set of numbers don't mean anything suddenly. You know, or on a set of dice. Like all of these little things are being broken down and that's we're talking about simple mechanics. We're not even talking about the advanced concepts that are within those. I was thinking less about that. When you said game game design is mind control, I immediately agreed with the sentence. Okay. Because you've heard me say it oftentimes here on the show, game systems teach you how they want you to play them. I agree in most cases. I don't disagree with that. That is (laughs) Right, right. And so I don't think it's a matter of – I mean you use the terms right and wrong. You know, is there a right way to play a game or a wrong way to play a game? And I don't think I would take it ever as far as that and say that you're playing D&D wrong. You know, mm-hmm. you go into that your fun is wrong, you know, sort of trope. Um, but I, I definitely think, like, if you if you take the time to not just surface level read for, like, okay, I roll this die, I add this number, I see if it's over this number, and if so, success. You know, if you if you dig deeper than that surface level reading of any game system. Mm-hmm. Um, in the setting they hand with you, how they ingrain the mechanics to bring that setting forth mm-hmm. through the the actual mechanics of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, to bring or if they do it all. Or if they do it all, exactly. I mean, there, <laughs> there's some systems which are very uh, uh, very broad. I'm a big fan of Savage Worlds. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't have a setting to it, but it has a play style to it. Fast, fun, furious. Very pulpy, very adventure, very heroic play. Mm-hmm. Um that if you look at the rules more than just their surface level, you will see the intent behind it when it was written. And you will see maybe not mind control. Mind control is probably a way a way too strong word for it, but you'll see a strong suggestion. A manipulation. A manipulation. A shove Correct. in a sure. direction. So that actually hits on something that, that uh, Rob and I talked a little bit about. Um Games like Savage World and, and D&D and uh, to some degree Star Wars, uh, FFG, yes. they're, yeah. they're designed to provide a, a cornucopia of potential experiences. Sure. Uh, especially Savage World. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there certainly are things that they foreground. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would posit that Dungeons & Dragons uh, gives you a cornucopia of experiences as long as that experience is combat. <laughs> No, I, I but I, I think to to that point is like Savage World has you can play rifts in Savage yeah. World. Yeah. You can play yeah. and literally they have Savage those Rifts, Savage yeah. Pathfinders. Yep. You know, so I and also 
You got so that. <laughs> I believe I believe that system matters. Yeah. I believe the D and D system foregrounds combat. However, I have also seen D and D games that didn't have any combat that were tremendously enjoyable. Sure, sure. Why not? Uh, and there are people who play and rarely even roll the dice. Ed Greenwood. He's pretty well known for that. But are you but, playing D and D? Ah, well, now, no, that, that's an argument. Uh, I think book, that's a whole other show. I was, was going to say, if, if if your gaming experience is centered yeah. largely around ignoring the system you're using, are you playing the well, system? Well, now that's a, that's another interesting question. Yeah, um, the system is there to facilitate play. The system is not the game. Correct. Every game that every group plays everywhere in the world is different, even if they're approaching uniformity. Yeah. The appearance of a, a homogenous system is illusory. Uh, but the system, when it was written, typically is trying to encourage uh, some themes. Now, one of the things I wanted to, to go into was the, the systems I discussed before. They, they're meant for very broad experiences. A lot of indie games are actually designed for much more narrow experiences, whether that's an emotional experience um, to deal with a particular culture uh, idea, what have you. And those get foregrounded. They get pushed a lot harder. Mm -hmm. And when those games first started becoming popular, the pushback they got from fans was, I feel like I'm not getting any choices. Mm -hmm. uh, example of that, Night Witches. Okay. Uh, have okay. you, you ever heard of Night Witches? Yes. Mm -mm. Um, so in Night Witches by Jason Morningstar, mm -hmm. you are playing World War II Russian pilots who are all women. Okay. Uh, they were a, a, a real, I'm going to say force in World War II. Mm -hmm. um, theoretically, men and women were the same in Russia. In practice, not so much. Um, and they were put on the field to... Uh, to harry the Germans. Um, their planes were old and slow. Yep. And they flew very, very low. So parachutes were pointless. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the one advantage they have is that they were so slow that if a fighter plane tried to get behind them, they would overshoot them instantly. They would either overshoot them or stall. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the night witches would fly over German uh, territory and drop bombs or sometimes railroad ties, especially when they started running out of money uh -huh. uh, for yep. bombs. So you would hear it go, and then you wouldn't know if it was a bomb or a railroad tie. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. yeah they, they, they. So in this game, you're only playing these women who are pilots, sometimes also mechanics, because everybody has to do a little bit of everything. Uh, and there were a lot of people who were like, that's all I'm playing, uh, and didn't necessarily see the advantage. Um, the other thing I'll say about this game is it's super duper gay. Uh, <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. um, you have my attention? Because one of the things is... You have this built up trauma and stress. Mm -hmm. And then it has a daytime and a nighttime action. The nighttime is always like you've made many, many bombing runs. This is the one where you're rolling dice to see whether or not things went wrong. Okay. Okay. And then okay. the daytime actions, you're trying to deal with this built up stress that you've got, however you can, whether that's uh, drinking, abusing other people, sex, whatever. But also, your plane got damaged. You're responsible for fixing it. Mm hmm. The guy who's got the parts will do it, but you got to be nice to him. Mm. So what do you do? How do you and handle that? How do you handle it? If you get caught being with another woman, 
how are you going to deal with the the commissar, the political officer? Yeah. What yeah. are you going to do? And it's exploring a very particular time and a very particular set of questions uh, in a way that I would suggest, yes, system matters here. System is foregrounding things. System is establishing themes. I could play it with Savage Worlds. Um, yeah. But I'm going to have a whole different experience. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, and it's not that it's mind control. It's that, to use an artistic metaphor, okay. uh, it's that I have, I'm using a lot more, a different range in my palette. Mm-hmm. Right? My Savage World is bold colors. My Savage World has some mixing, but it's for the most part very, very bright and very yeah. intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this has a lot more raw umber. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I expect. Yeah. So, so it's, it's not that I can't. Um, it's not that it's mind control. It's just that it's, it's giving me, uh, it's encouraging me to use a different kind of palette. Mm-hmm. No, I, and, and I think, I think that's a, a great way of putting it. We've talked about, uh, systems and how they adjust the theme and mood of a story uh, based upon the mechanics they set forth and even stealing those mechanics because sometimes they aren't within the system really they they're adjacent to the system um the way that um the one ring uses uh effectively uh an attrition of stress that forces your return to someplace comfortable is not common in other games but would make sense if that is the theme that you're going for this this exhaustive experience that eventually brings you back together and need that need to be able to create home mm-hmm. um that that's not common but it is something that can add flavor so even so much to say is that a system has that mechanics it may be a portion of that system has that mood mechanic that you really require and that's one of the things that i i keep talking about what can we extract out of a game to really to go like what are you wanting to do, do you want intensity like alien mm-hmm. right you want to have that stress that concern that every turn is gonna is gonna add another level of stress. You may not get injured by seeing a you know a, a, a xenomorph run across your area and drip acid as he goes into the next room and to kill someone else, but you just took trauma, which yeah. is far worse yeah. in some cases because now you're less likely to be successful. Like, how do you add that level of trauma to a game? Which I think. A, a setting that I think would have the same kind of feel for people who are unprepared, like Ravenloft. Mm-hmm. That's a harrowing place to be. Sure, sure. But the D&D setting makes it feel heroic. Yeah, it's fantasy superheroes. Right. But isn't that adventure or, or Tales of the Ant Society or that? Shouldn't I just use heroes who are godlike, who can walk through things, and then the trauma sits underneath that? But there's no trauma in that system either. Mm-hmm. So you're... You, you, again, the story, the, the the mechanics behind the system teach you a certain aspect of it, but like we were saying earlier on, sometimes what you think is the story and what they're trying to present isn't well presented within the mechanics of the system behind it. Yep, yep. We we talked about this a little bit earlier. Hmm, how to do this without doing any spoilers? So we were talking about critical role. We did uh, <laughs> specifically the the calamity that's going on. Exu calamity uh, uh, that they just finished, and I don't want to spoil it. But That's I didn't fair. realize until the last episode that it was a horror game, uh, and I probably should have. I think I think that's a great uh, thing to. But, I don't think it was a spoiler, but I think that's a great prep for people going yeah. in. And I mean, to put it to plainly, is that 
it's setting that expectation and putting it in. Jiangxi puts that expectation out, sets it for you. I think Alien does a great job of presenting and giving it to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Others said the One Ring presents it and gives it to you in a very clear format, but so many systems don't. Yeah, but – all right. So horror means different things, right? Jiangxi has one type of horror. Correct. Almost comical um, horror. Yeah. Um, <laughs> technically, what they're doing in Calamity is still D&D, mm-hmm. but it's a different kind of horror than Ravenloft. Right? Yeah. The horror of Ravenloft is, uh, I, I think they took a big swing. I did. Um, I agree. I agree. Uh, because the horror is the feeling that you can't make a difference. Um, but it's not, it's, it's not overt. It's yeah, the version through the text. They're expecting you to be an educated they, person stepping in and going, oh, I'm, I'm seeing the darkness yeah, and the gray and the they horror. They a subtle despair. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is not what's going on with Calamity. Now, one of the things – they start off Calamity by saying, first of all, it's a Calamity. Second of all, everything's going wrong. Third of all, these characters that you're going to grow to love are all probably going to die. Mm-hmm. So you know that going in. Uh, so even though it's D&D, they, they've established those understandings. And part of that is what I was talking about before. Like you, you have a culture of play. You have a, a, a contract. Right? Yeah. You have a societal yeah. contract. Uh, if I'm playing a game of Dread, for Oof. instance. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not called Happy Fun Ball. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, it's, and the, the whole point is to build and release tension and to know that maybe one person will make it out and possibly not even them. Right. Uh, and the, the challenge the challenge is within a culture of play. So Ravenloft and D&D in general doesn't normally have a culture of play based on you're going to lose. Even mm-hmm. Ravenloft isn't you're going to lose. It's right. that you're not going to win. Uh, so Right. But it's not like, – again, it's not overtly set yeah, in expectations. But, but, and that's why I said that's kind of a big swing because yeah. it's it's existing in opposition to – to the general culture that D&D uses. Exactly. Yep. Um, and I haven't played Ravenloft. My impression is that there's points where the play supports that and points where it does not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but but having not played it, I don't want to go too far into that. Um, but to some, some degree, Calamity benefits because it's four episodes long. Drive your characters like they're stolen cars. Yep. You know, you know, you've, uh, things go wrong. Um, I played one of the the very first indie game I ever played Mm -hmm. was powered by the apocalypse and it was apocalypse world. It was the OG. Okay. Okay. And at the beginning of the game, someone played a hard holder. So we built this, this place called the ocelot's nest, which was our home base. Okay. And the GM blew it up at the end of the adventure. And we had been so invested in it. Oh yeah. Like we were invested in these relationships and in a one shot, I cared that our base had been blown up. I cared about the damage that happened to the other characters. Yeah. And I was like, what, what is happening to my face? (laughs) (laughs) So that, but that's the thing is, is that one of the things we talk about all the time is getting your players invested, giving them something to be invested in so that they have those moments. But I think the other aspect of that is also setting an expectation of where the story is going to go. Mm-hmm. If the story is you are not going to change the world, you are going to survive in it, and that's all you set the expectation as, your players know what they're going through as they're going into it, versus you starting a D&D campaign that's going into Raven, Ravenloft. 
But if you if you didn't even say Ravenloft, you just said this game is about is about a bunch of heroes who are stepping into darkness and knowing it, and the players know that you are not going to succeed at changing it. Mm-hmm. You are going to survive the situation. And they're like, okay. Establishing stakes. You open Ravenloft and suddenly you now have a very different vision of how Ravenloft is going to go. Yep. And I think that's a, I I think if I can wrap up our discussion a little bit and kind of put a bow on today is that one of the takeaways I think you can take away from this as far as mechanics go and story writing particularly is a gift you can give to yourself and your table is setting expectations like we talk about between players and storytellers, giving the respect on both sides and understanding that there are neurodiversity, physical diversity, financial diversity that is all going on at the table and doing your best to balance that. But also just within the story itself, giving your players access to an expectation of what the story is going to be. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not giving up the plot. You're not – I mean sometimes you have to. To make sure that the end meets the needs of the players, so that they can ride the adventure and have agency. Yeah, and and I think I think you know I I talk a lot about you know my my disdain for spoiler culture nowadays. Oh God, yeah. Of just how every little thing, like you know, oh, did you see the new Spider-Man? Oh no, 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 don't spoil anything for me. Like I just said the name of it, but you told me Spider-Man was in it. Yeah, it's a Spider-Man movie, of course. Like, of course, Spider-Man's going to be in it. You know? Oh, so I don't want spoilers. I I. I feel like that bleeds a lot into our games nowadays. I agree. I and, completely agree. And, and it, 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 it irks me. Um, but, like, you know, like, in, in, in my game, I'm very free about talking about my plot and about where it's going to go and stuff like that. And I set, I set a lot of I, – I, we have a lot of, like, out-of-character conversations yeah. about the expectations of where the story is going to go and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. you guys know you're going in – like, Apocrypha is going to be a major part of the next story. But, like – that's not spoiling anything. That's just being like, oh yeah, this is a thing. The, 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 the vicissitudes of the story moving forward are what are going to be the important defining parts of that story, mm-hmm. not where it's taking place. Right. You know? Right. Um, and so I, I, I think if we just move past the whole like, oh, I don't want to spoil anything and open up and have these important conversations and stuff that we can communicate a lot better as, as, as players, you know, Mm -hmm. we can set, we can set a certain level of tone, mood and feel. Yes. And and the more you can expose to a degree of that mood and feel about what the plot's going to do. I think the more constructive your story will be for the players. The more your players can lean into it because they Mm -hmm. know what you're going for. Exactly. I, um, I know you're trying to finish up, so I'm going to no, no, no. We still have questions and stuff too. Oh, oh good, but, good, yeah, good, good. But uh, all right, so uh, one way that I GM, uh, I, I like to let players determine the direction of the story, even if yeah. I'm playing a pre-written one. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I use what characters create, uh, what characters are created to determine mm-hmm. the plot. Yep. Uh, uh, even regardless of system, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is, so when it comes to power, especially GM power, sometimes we get very fixated on the idea of control. I bought this game. This is the game I prepared. This is the game you guys are playing. I was nice enough to incorporate this and this and this and blah, sure. blah, blah. Um, one of the things I would like to encourage people running games to do is to be vulnerable. Uh 
and <laughs> to be more patient than I am. Um, <laughs> so I mentioned Richard Rogers. One of the things I learned from him mm-hmm. is that in honing the craft of GMing, uh, it is always to my benefit at the end of a session to ask the players what they enjoyed and what they'd like to see more of. Yep. Stars and wishes. Yep. We, we, use, we, we yeah. push yep. that a lot. And Absolutely. In addition to that, uh, and using that to, to hone my craft, I think about a book Stephen King wrote about writing. One of the things he talks about is that you can't create it in, in, a, in a vacuum. Uh, mm-hmm. The way I put it is if, if you create it in a vacuum, everything sucks. <laughs> Um, but I see what you did there. Clever. That's clever. Um, but for him, what that meant was that wherever he went, he would have some kind of paperback book with him. Um, you know, we're lucky enough to have our phones with us these days. I listen to a lot of actual plays. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are professional groups. Some of them are not. It's all over the place. Uh, and part of what I'm trying to do is to be reflective. I'm reflective after I run a game. But I also reflect on what works or doesn't work for different GM styles. Uh-huh. And I was watching uh, a game that was a professional game being run by Abria Iyengar. And a player who was very comfortable acting but not very comfortable with the rules was struggling in a way which I, as a listener, was like, come on. Um, but the amount of, of patience that she displayed uh, made me think, this is a better game because she didn't rush to the next thing. This is a better game because she spent three minutes on what felt like a basic rule to me. And it made the player more invested. It made their actions better. Yeah, absolutely. And then I also was like, I think I need this to be a better teacher. Hmm. I need this to be better at other things in my life. Uh, the game is just illustrating that for me. And I, I, I think that's, one of the greatest takeaways of role play role play is education mm-hmm. at multiple levels we learn things through role play that we don't recognize social trust communication skills uh breaking the immersion that we are in reality mm-hmm. gives us exploration we've talked about this a lot into other areas it connects us with other people i mean we're in multiple communities across the planet. Yeah, allows us to make make choices and explore themes and and, and ideas that we wouldn't ordinarily uh, want to do in real life because mm-hmm. there are actual consequences in real life, but mm-hmm. very seldom are there lasting consequences at a you know Dungeons and Dragons game. You know, seldom, seldom. <laughs> well, I say seldom. I mean, no, no, you know, I agree. But but again, it's, a, it's, it's still, a, still a real experience. It's still a know, social but, and real experience. Sure, yeah. That's correct. So. It's, there's always the balance of that, like, especially when it comes to concepts of like appropriation or, or understanding. Like, mm-hmm. yep, exactly. There are people who are diverse can be very upset about the idea that because I played a role playing game, I now understand what it means to be blah. Uh, and you can be opening a place in your mind where you start to understand, mm-hmm. where you can at least can comprehend. Maxine Green calls it, um, uh, a human possibility. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, there, there's there's a lot of potential there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I've loved this discussion. I'm definitely going to invite you back for another. We're going to have to find another 300 level thing, but I'm sure we will come up with a few after this. <laughs> I didn't even get a chance to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You didn't, and I'm, I, I've got I will bring so you so much to maybe, say about you. Know, look, look, don't worry about it. We're not gonna, <laughs> we're not going to put that idea in the shredder. I'm sure it's gonna. I'm sure that idea is going to stick like a splinter under you know under our nails. So. Uh, don't, uh, 
Uh, well, yeah. All right. All right. It's clearly, I see where this is Come going. Come around next April and... Uh... <laughs> all right. Casey all right. Jones. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we did have some questions from uh, one of our listeners in particular because, again, this topic was a little broad to try and get people into, but I hope that it sparks some more conversation and that we can get to. But I want to hit some of these questions real quick just to see... Because I think some of them we answered, but I think... I, I would sure, like sure, them. sure. So... Uh, Nevum was the one who hit most of these, and that was uh, one of the questions that uh, was asked was, what kind of toxic player, uh, what kind of toxic power dynamics can be found around the table, and how do you deal with them? <laughs> I, I think there's too many to describe, realistically. A lot of things can happen based on social setting. Some can happen based upon just misunderstanding, mm-hmm. simple misunderstanding at, at, at table between mechanics and play. You know whether or not you're utilizing them or not. Um, I think the 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 simplest one is probably one of the oldest ones that we deal with, which is the DM in ultimate control, the player versus the DM. That yeah. dynamic is yeah. toxic to me because I feel that it breaks down role play and turns it back into a table into a board game. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you are you are now playing a a, a crazed football game or or in, where you have a goalie and that's it. You know, yeah, yeah. I think know, the, 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 American the one, Gladiators role playing edition. You know, the wonder of tabletop role playing is that, um, in a very real sense, there's no winning or losing. There's just the story. Yeah, you know? yeah. You you may you may fail at objectives within the story, but that doesn't mean you've quote unquote lost the game. Right. You know, right. um, and the the uh, leaning into the power dynamic of player versus GM is is absolutely setting a win condition to the game. You know, you have to right. beat the DM. Right. Uh I think I think you're going to run into a toxic power dynamic anytime uh, you either misread the the power dynamic at the table, or you read it correctly and manipulate it. Create an assumption. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I would love to hear what Doc Jason has to say. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear the extended version. Yeah, the extended yeah. version. Well, um, yeah, a lot of that is back to what we were talking about before with the social contract. There's there's something that's a, uh, kind of emerged over time, which is the concept of, of safety tools is what we normally mm-hmm, call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this looks a little different depending on the game you're playing and the setting. Uh, what works online is different than what works for a LARP, is different mm-hmm. than what works for a table. The most common one to encounter uh, these days is called the X card. Yep. And there's a lot of people who have, again, strong feelings about the X card. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, it's it's a blunt instrument, but it can be very effective mm-hmm. um, when when you're crossing a uh, a line for someone for them to just be like, no. Uh, one of the problems with the X card is that it feels like you're risking social capital for a player, especially if they don't know the other players, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes what it takes to make that work is for the GM to be willing to demonstrate it. Um, or, or someone else who is at the table who has the, uh, a higher social capital to demonstrate it. Um, literally what happened at my table last game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Literally yeah. what happened. Yeah. First time, first time anybody X carded anything and it was Rob. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, threw it out and we immediately addressed it. What, what's, you know, are you throwing, is this an X card? Yes, I think it is. Okay, but I, cool. I think that right there was the fact that you actually threw the card. I presented it in, in, in total, but you asked the question, is this an X card? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the whole thing is, is that it's, it's that, 
because the dynamic is there that you are in control, yeah. you had the ability to do so. I really wasn't throwing a card. I was making a, a bold statement, but I didn't say I need to X card this. I wasn't throwing the social right, edge. Right. So I think that speaks to it. But yeah. there, but there was discussion at the table, mm-hmm. and yep. we got we got some things aired out and whatnot. And uh, uh, in the end, it was it was a misunderstanding of the motivations of a character at the table. Um, it looked like one character was just being a a, a, a uh, backstabbing jerk, essentially, and trying to um, steal the spotlight off of a plot that was very centered around Rob's character. Yeah. Um, when it was fully, it was fully in fitting with that character's motivations and thoughts and, and drives and stuff like that, but those motivations had not been made clear to the other players at the table, so it, it had the appearance of impropriety, um, in and out of character. And, uh, once we kind of laid some cards on the table, X cards included, um, we were able to kind of have that discussion, things got aired out. The the X card was revoked and and the the plot unfolded as it did. Um, and uh, in the in our after game discussion, um, Rob basically said like I, I I feel like that was a really great thing that happened because the X card was dropped and we all handled it and like it displayed a trust at the table that the system was tested. And the system succeeded. Mm-hmm. And therefore, now everybody knows that the X card works in our environment. My, uh, again, I'm going to say Richard Rogers again. I says, name three times. I'll summon him. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that he said is that he's he's seen the X card many times. There's never been a game that he thinks doesn't end up better. Yeah. Because yeah. he's like, we're smart people. It, just because we're trying one thing doesn't mean we can't come out with something better that, that remembers that the player's are more important than the game, and that is always true. The players are yeah. always more important than the game. A couple other tools just to throw out there, lines and veils. Yep. Uh, I find lines and veils is more useful at the beginning of a game than during yes. because there's too many of them. But but the GM generally is uh, more able to keep track of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bo Sheldon also has one. Dang, the terms is skipping my mind. It's, okay. it's it has to do with uh, fast forward, playback, pause. Okay, uh, there there are ways of uh, controlling the momentum so that they are keeping people more in mind. Uh, okay, I, I, I'll have to look it up. And yeah, see I, I, I've heard it. I know what you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, I've definitely read up on it and uh, a little bit, uh, but I I haven't seen it active, and so that's why I've never really talked about it much. So uh, and. and even then, at the end of the day, they're all just tools. Yeah. Um, it can be possible to have these tools and people can still squick out and you may not yeah. immediately be aware. Uh, and it's, it's, it's still social. It's, it's still, still things social. that are, that, there are still subtle manipulations based on trust and long-term relationships, mm-hmm. excuse me, relationships. I mean, if your table is comprised of people you've known for X teen years, there are hidden parts there that you're just going to accept and realize that they are probably socially toxic. Mm-hmm. But but again, that you have to break those layers down. So how to deal with it? The best thing that I think we can all agree on is communication and trust that that communication can occur in a comfortable space. Yeah. And as a corollary to that, I'd say no no dramatic reveal, no surprise is ever worth the potential of hurting someone. Yeah. Agreed. If, Agreed. If you're going to, if you're going to drop a surprise that you think has that possibility, have that conversation. Yep. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, we got a few more questions. 
some do you want to grab the next one uh yeah uh do we want to do we want to trim this down or do we want to uh go through all of them i would say grab at least one more all and right and maybe we'll, we'll we'll grab i want to grab one other thing in here as like a closing because there's no way we're going to crack it but i i think it's going to open our next show with you so <laughs> all right so i i really like this question uh does in-game power dynamics uh influence out of game power dynamics and the other way around. Uh, for those uh, for those questions, I have in mind the same kind of mechanism that's described in LARP as bleed in and bleed out. Um, if I'm understanding those correctly, that's and that's that's like your your emotional response in character making you mad out or, or you know making you feel those emotions out of character yeah. and vice versa. You know, dragging stuff into the game. Yeah. The. <laughs> The largest problem with bleed is much like other things, uh, people pretending that it doesn't happen. Yep. <laughs> yep. Like it's, it's natural. You're, you're playing an emotional thing. Uh, a lot of our characters are sometimes more like us than we want to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, reflection is a big part for me of, of working through that. Why I feel that way, why the character feels that way. Uh, sometimes I have a problem when I'm gaming because I, I get so excited about the game that I start anticipating things mm-hmm. and then I play and the other players are not playing the game that I anticipated. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that's, that's, ex- you just described exactly what Rob does. Yes. You know, I, <laughs> I do it. Uh, and I believe I've gotten better at rolling with that over the years, but there's yeah. still sometimes where, um, especially as a player, frankly, more than as a GM, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because as a GM, I have limitless resources, but as a player, uh, I have this character sheet in front of me. Yep. Um, and those emotions are going to, to be important to me. Uh, I have an easier time doing that with dealing with it with a group that I know well. Mm-hmm. Where I can talk to them either personally or 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 not, uh, than with a single serve group. Even though these are people I might not ever see again. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and there's also you know, um, I'm I'm 46. Uh, in in my life, there have been groups that were full of people I cared a great deal for that that now we do not talk. Yeah. Uh, and whether or not that's something from a game or had emotions that were carried over from the game mm-hmm. or someone things got exposed, things got exposed yeah. or, uh, someone routinely shows up inebriated and, yeah. uh, that, that is a problem that you felt like you couldn't confront. Like those things, theoretically, there's this, this concept that we call the magic circle. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and you were talking about an element of it earlier, that the game happens and in some ways is cut off from reality, that it does not matter mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's, quote, just a game. Yep. But that magic circle is always permeable. Yeah. Um, if you are a boxer and someone has punched you a bunch in the head, it doesn't matter that it was allowed and it was in the ring. Yep. yep. <laughs> like, uh, and if you're playing and you feel like your identity has been assaulted... Yeah, uh, it's it's natural um, to feel some amount of anger, defensiveness, or or reaction. Uh, but the trick to it isn't to ignore it. Uh, it's it's to try not to look away from it, to be vulnerable with it, and to have the hard conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I want to say a couple things. To that number one, we both larped at a game that shows and the ebbs and flows of that mm-hmm. on so many levels. There are people that I probably will never talk to again from that LARP because of things I discovered there. 
whether they were things that happened at the LARP that were upsetting, things that happened socially that was that happened because there was a LARP and the, and they connected with others, or things that happened immediately after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most uh, quintessential things that you you wouldn't and I'm going to get in trouble there. You know, if we had a comment section right now and enough people listening, I'm going to get flack for this, and that is is that the SCA is a LARP. I'm sorry. You're historically LARPing. It is. Deal. Nope. See, there, there's your, there. You you're, are with me on that page. You are playing a role. I 100% agree with you. Live. The problem with that is that it happens at such a ephemeral level. Yes, there are events, but there are meetings. There are connections. There are uh, uh, awards given. There are statuses yeah. that translate yeah. around the world. One of my friends uh, was at an event. It's the reason why he left. He never returned to the SCA, mm-hmm. uh, to my knowledge, was that he was in the parking lot. He had just gotten off all of his armor and stuff, put it in his car, started to back out of his parking spot, and a guy tears around the corner or, or starts backing up and yells at him. And he's got the right of way, and he's like, what is this guy doing? And And he tells him, get out of my way. Don't you know who I am? And he's like, excuse me? And he's like... I am Lord so and so, and so he looks around. And he goes, We're in a parking lot, right? You're just a dude yelling at me, and he he got out of his way, and the guy was like, "You have no respect for lordships," and it was like, "Okay, that's a person who bled way too hard." Yeah, yeah. But we saw that at very different levels mm-hmm. on the field with people who who create a small microcosm of their existence there. Yeah, and they yeah. invest so much. You see it in MMOs. Yeah, sure. You see it, the guilds that wrap around them and how how many hours happen in chats about that have nothing to do with the game, but because it created a society about the framework that they're that hard invested to it, that that is more real to them than reality. The relationships that are occurring there are too connective for them. And we don't have a framework for handling that here. We don't have good tools that are available out there. Yes, there are out there. You could go and study a lot of Nordic LARP stuff and get the understandings that are necessary that European role players and and game masters over there litter and I'll use the term game master very loosely. Mm-hmm. Apologize seriously if any of you are translating and listening to this. I'm sorry. Uh but the storytellers on that side and the players on that side that have that are far better equipped in many ways to handle very complex situations and be able to walk away from them and understand that the tools are about the experience and being healthy within that experience Mm -hmm. we don't have here we treat it with a with a lens of of shame we we we, i'm gonna address this very shortly and that is uh so that i don't go too far into this but firefighters who are learning to fight fires do simulations of trauma of fire of life-saving they don't role play Mm -hmm. police who are doing Terror, terror simulations where there's a hostage have tactical or, exercises. Correct, not role play. <laughs> At no point in those, and I'm sure I'm going to get flack if someone who was listening who who helps designed those at a much higher educational level. They're going to, oh. they don't talk about how they're feeling. There's no debrief to help them through the crisis of the events that they just created. Yeah. Unless there's a problem that happens. I think you've pointed out the problem with those trainings. Exactly. But I'm sure certain that there's someone like, no, 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 we go through some of that. And I'm like, do you have them go to a therapy group after to discuss how they felt? 
about it? Did they want right. to cry at point point because they lost themselves in the simulation? Does your role play come with aftercare? Right. <laughs> yeah. No, but that the the laugh at the end of your statement tells enough about our society and we are connected enough within this storytelling space that I'm bitter and disillusioned? Correct. Yes. <laughs> No, but that, that's the thing. So I'm, yeah. I'm gonna leave, I'm, I'm gonna just, literally, I'm gonna leave it on the table, don't touch it, we'll get back to that moment, but. Alright, so my, 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 to. <laughs> my, I'm with you, I know you're with me on that. My contribution to the bleed discussion is this. Yeah. Um, uh, we think we've, we've discussed this one before, uh, is, uh, you had pre-transition for me. Yes. Um, you had a, I was in your 7C game. Yes. And I was playing a sort of, uh, scholar, poet sort of guy who, uh, liked, liked his, liked his wine quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you ran a game session mm-hmm. where, uh, you basically presented a set of facts to my character that were, uh, erroneous. Yes. And it was supposed to be a drunken rampage my character went on. Yes. Um, and, uh, I will say, in the moment, you thought it was great fun. I have a huge trigger for loss of control. It is very psychologically triggering for me. Mm-hmm. And when at the end of it, you were like, oh, and your character ruined everything, and you had nothing you could do, of, you could have done nothing to have changed it. I, I, it, it destroyed me. Mm-hmm. I was like, you were like, wasn't that great? And I was like, oh, sorry. yeah. No. No. <laughs> I need aftercare. <laughs> For like a week afterwards, I was yeah. like, I don't know. I like, I don't know how to tell him that game really hurt me. You know, yeah. like even to this day, to this day, I'm having a little trouble, like just talking about how like, yeah, no, that was not a fun game for me, you know? I, I remember, but I want to say years ago, you said, one day we will unpack this. Today is not that day, and tomorrow I, is even worse. I, I, I don't, I, the, the problem is I couldn't articulate that at the time. Yeah. I, I have the tools and the language now with right. a little bit of therapy and some self-introspection and stuff like that to be able to tell you that's why that game session did not feel good to me is because of a psychological trigger dealing with loss of control. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I couldn't have articulated it at the time. You did nothing wrong. Right. You didn't know, and I didn't know how to tell you. Right. You know what was what was going on with that, but, uh, I, you know, like I said though, I mean, it was it was just a game session. Yeah. You told well, a story. I reacted to that story, and you, th- we all thought it was great fun until like I, afterwards, I was like, oh, uh, yeah, that didn't that didn't that didn't feel good. Right. That was not a fun game session for me. But you know. We, but, but that's, but that's bleed, yeah. you know, that is when, when I, when I earlier said that, you know, games were a mostly safe place to explore escapist fantasy and that, you know, the things that happen in game don't really happen, but they happen. They're all, all of our sensors are being tripped. Exactly. How is it any different than reality? Then? Exactly. And, and if you're invested, you're invested. That's the important thing to remember is that when you well, like listen to anybody talk about role playing games mm-hmm. that they've had in the past, you remember that time we killed a dragon? Yeah. They're not we our characters in a game killed a dragon. No, they say we killed a dragon. Yeah. Because with with all the imagination and the immersion that goes on and the camaraderie at the table and stuff like that, it 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 writes itself into your memory very much in the same way that actually physically experiencing it does. One hundred percent. Um, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. 
because the imagination is so vivid in doing so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the unfortunate side effect of that is that if you have something that is like psychologically triggering, like a loss of control story, Mm -hmm. um, that also writes itself directly into your sense memory and you just, it it just hits Mm -hmm. as hard as it, you know, normally would. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's, um, there's two other points that it, man, I almost feel, I feel bad following it because it's a subject change back to something else. I don't, no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so your SCA story, um, mm-hmm. just in terms of answering the question, there's, there's two points I wanted to make for, for people. Uh, one, large scale events in the United States run into a cultural problem for us that affects how we engage with stuff that comes from different cultures. The Nordic LARPs are run the way they are partially because of the culture there. They take a lot of risks. Damage has been done. Mm-hmm. Um, the culture of the United States is litigious. If you're at a large-scale event, there is a non-zero chance that you will get sued. Uh, and a lot of what organizations do is try to force all that possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, however they can. Mm-hmm. And when people have paid for a thing, uh, they feel like they have an established expectation. And if that has not been made clear, uh-huh. then they will, I want to see your manager at you. Uh-huh. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is this. When people are uncomfortable, if they feel threatened or their power is, is uh, taken away from them, their, their perception of power, they will draw on things that have made them feel confident. If they're a person who is very physical, they will make themselves look big and, and, and mm-hmm. appear to be physically intimidating. If they are a lawyer, <laughs> they will probably get litigious. If they are, if they see themselves as an intellectual, they, and you'll see this interaction online, this is what happens when people are, are threatened. They try to make themselves look big by drawing on their strengths. Mm-hmm. One of the things you're uh, describing for the SCA thing is a person who has an area where he felt strength uh, and had felt it relatively recently mm-hmm. and then was in a situation where that strength was not there, was not respected, was, was outside the circle. And that is, that is a hell of an experience. Yeah. Um, I, I, in a LARP, I was the, I was the chancellor of a magical college. Mm-hmm. So for three days, I was the most amazing wizard on the planet mm-hmm. and looked to with, Affection and I'd say adoration okay. by every other character. Yeah. And then I had to get in the car, wear my t-shirt and drive away. Yep. <laughs> it's crashing. And there was an emotional crash from that, yeah. uh, which mm-hmm. gave me something to think about. But one of the things I thought about was as a person who works at a university, I was like the head of my university experiences that all the time Yeah. without the crash. And that would do something to a person. Yeah. Uh, and it is valuable to think about in that context, um, not just the, of the, the discrepancy between those states, but what it's like not to have that discrepancy yeah. is a thing worth thinking about. I, I, I'm going to leave that there. There's a lot to go with, but yeah. I'm going to present this. There's a couple of questions here, but I'm not going to answer these because I feel that these are their own discussion. Yeah, like yeah. we could spend a lot of time on these, and I want and to. We are, we are already we are well over, well but over I, I will yeah. leave with this question 
to be presented for a future storytelling opportunity that I would love for, you know, for you to come on the show for, which is how to use power dynamics to build a more compelling story. And I think part of that is going to be discussing the pitfalls that come into it with your players. Mm -hmm. What you can present, what you're allowed to present, I think is a portion of that. But I, I feel that we could have a, a, a rather long hour plus discussion. Well, thank on you, Nevin, for that. adding that to the show yes. list, whether you intended it or yep. not. Yep. So, uh, well, well done. Well done on that. Uh, before we start our closing, let's, let's thank you again for coming to the show, Doc. It's Dr. been a Jason pleasure. Cox, thank Thanks you so me. much. Yeah. This Aww. has been us, yes. fantastic. We will definitely have you on again if you've got the time. I'm so <laughs> glad we were able to fit you in. Uh, we'll try and do something remote if we can. Sure. Uh, but I, I understand your schedule gets kind of hectic. You, you, you have a life. <laughs> Real life comes into this. It was wonderful to be able to get you for a few hours up right. here and Absolutely. enjoy this. So. Always a pleasure. I, yeah. I never get tired of talking about this stuff. So <laughs> yes. I, I'm sure everyone from, from my life disconnected from this stuff appreciates me having the opportunity to not have to say it to them all the time. <laughs> yep. uh, as an aside, I will say this. Uh, we will, we will keep in contact about, uh, a 500 year old vampire. I'm, I, I will try and get some information out to our listeners about that and keep that going. Um, and we will definitely have you on again. Um, our next week's topic, which is interesting because we kind of addressed it a little bit. Well, say what, let me, let me do that because I know you've got some technical stuff to, to, I will. to hit. Okay. Yep. I'll, I'll close, I'll get that in a second as we're closing up. But the ship of Theseus was a, was something that we came up with. As, yeah. As a, I liked the title. I think that was really cool. But we have games that have gone through so many generational changes. D&D is a, is a more obvious one than most that we've gone from this simple box set that was about a bunch of people going into a dungeon, getting gold, and getting the hell out. Mm-hmm. It was practically a board game. And now but, it's now it's a lifestyle brand, essentially. Yeah, but yeah. how have we lost what D&D is by where we are now? You know, and, is and, it recognizable? And even not even D and D, but uh, you know, we've looked at a couple other beloved systems yeah. and stuff like that. And just from edition to edition, you get you know, a, a new edition comes out, and uh, a large portion of the player base sneers at that edition and says that's that's it doesn't feel like the same game anymore. And so the question of the ship of Theseus is, how much of a game system can you replace until it is not the same game anymore? Uh, and, and is that a good thing or is that a bad thing of discarding the old vestigial parts and, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the discussion. So I, (laughs) I, I look forward to us tearing things apart and slightly fret us doing a deep dive into 7th C 2nd edition because <laughs> I'm going to have to start talking about the that's what, aspects. that's what brought the discussion up. It's true. So we're going to hit, hit Robert at Hertz. You can find us on Twitter at ST underscore Conclave, on Instagram at ST underscore Conclave. Listen to us live every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time on MixLR.com slash Storyteller dash Conclave. And uh, join us up on our Discord. Uh, you can find the link on our Twitter as well as our website, StorytellerConclave.com. Uh, Dr. Dr. Jason Cox is up there on our uh, on our Discord. If you want to show, shoot us some after show questions and yep. whatnot, or shoot us some questions for the next show, we'd love to hear you uh, join the discussion. Yep. We, uh, we'd like to thank our Patreon members, especially our name members who help us out every single month. Knox in the Box, uh, Subjet, Sam, The Arcane Asylum, Sparkle Motion, Veteran, and Hulavu. We really appreciate all your support. Our pre-show music is by Arcane Anthems. You can find that at patreon.com slash arcane anthems. Our intro music is Beyond the Warriors by Geefrog. You can find that at geefrog.bandcamp 
bandcamp.com or on Google Music. And the outro music, which you're hearing right now, is Only Our Footprints in the Sand by Midair Machine. You can find that at freemusicarchive.org. A big shout-out, as always, to our families, Vicky and Sean. Thank you so thank much you. for thank you and supporting us. All of our friends who sat with us at our tables over the years to give us these great stories to share Jason with you. Jason, here with us? Yes. Jason Cox. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, Professor. Uh, joined us joined us today and uh, shared these great insights with you and you, every single one of our listeners. We love you so much. Love you guys. Good night. Good night.